How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You didn't realize that that was the theme song of Revelation, did you? I don't know if I did either until I heard that song. I'm Pastor Darren. Pastor Don is at home for Thanksgiving. And he said, Darren, now that we're done all that controversial stuff, preach Revelation. I said, okay. It won't be an issue. Revelation has been turned into something so often, even in our own well-meaning, that I don't think it was ever supposed to be. Revelation, as you read it in context of the churches it was written to, is this beautiful prophecy of how marvelous and wonderful is the Savior's love for you. It's to encourage churches that are struggling to give them hope. It wasn't the key to unlock how many blood moons it'll take until the world explodes. Like, that's not the point. This was a vision from God to one of his disciples, a pastor of one of those churches, to take this letter, to give it to these churches, and to say, to hold on, repent of sin, and persevere. Because I'm coming back. I'm coming back. That's how marvelous and wonderful the Savior's love is for me. The seven churches of Revelation. If you're not familiar with this passage of Scripture, at the very beginning of Revelation in chapter 1, it says that Jesus gave John a vision. John is now well into his years. He's pastored for many years in a city called Ephesus. And now he's been exiled to an island off the coast. He lives there in a cave. It's a dangerous time to be a Christian. These are not the days of Paul the missionary and church plants in every single city. This is not those days anymore. This is around 90 AD. This is 30, 35 years later from when Paul last wrote his letters to these churches. And it's even been over 40 years since Paul helped plant some of these churches. These aren't the first people that sat in the pews, in that person's living room, wherever it was, and they prayed and they sang and they fellowshiped together. This is the next generation. And since then, it's gotten much worse. If you read in history, it was Nero who ran the Roman Empire who started persecuting and killing Christians. Later in 70 AD, they come through Jerusalem and they burn the temple down. About 10 years later, Domitian, now ruling the Roman Empire, institutes what they call emperor worship. And worship centers are set up in all of these cities with seals put up on the top of the building and it says that the Caesar is Lord and God. And they need to come worship. That's the world they now live in. Since Paul and the other missionaries planted these churches. These churches are hanging on. But they're getting kicked out of their trade guilds. They're being kicked out of their communities. You can read about this in historical works. That tell about this time period. Where being a Christian meant you might be giving up everything. Life and death for them. So it should come as no surprise that when Jesus 
speaks this vision to John and says, John, go tell the churches. They need to know, John. They need to know that I'm coming back, John. They need to know that I have control over creation. That I'm going to move one day in plagues across the, the world like I did back in the days of Egypt when I showed Pharaoh that I was in control of all things. And I moved creation to do things it wasn't supposed to do and it revealed the power of God to everybody. I'm going to do it again, John. The world's going to see. And if John, if they can repent of sin and if they can persevere... One day, the dragon will fall. The adulterous mistress will be defeated. The empire will collapse, John, and I'll come back. All people will stand before me. And those I don't know will be sent away, but those I do know, they will be welcomed in. John, they're going to live with me forever. Forever. The river of life, John, the tree that produces fruit, the tree of life, John, it's going to be there. They're going to be with me. There's not going to be a need for a sun anymore. I'm going to be their light, John. They need to know. So John writes it down, and he goes to these churches, and he tells them the prophecy of Revelation. That's the letter. There's seven churches in Asia Minor down in this corner of the world where John had worked as a pastor for many years. Ephesus being the first church on the edge of the coast where the harbor is. And then up in a circle, if you were to follow the road, you would go through all seven of these churches. And when we turn in our Bibles in just a second to Revelation 2, you're going to see those churches are all in order. The letters are in the order how the messenger would go around from city to city to city. And the sermon would be preached in each of their towns. Today, we're going to read the letter to the Ephesian church. And as we read it, we're going to get a glimpse into what they were going through at this period of time. You remember Artemis of the Ephesians, her mighty temple from the book of Acts? Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what it could have looked like. That's what they were battling. That was the pagan world. And in the middle of this city of a quarter million people, God had planted a church. This is amazing. This is the letter to the Ephesian church. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me and read along. If you want, I have the scripture up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you today. Hope you can read it. This is the second chapter of the revelation of Jesus. Recorded by John, given to the churches. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work, and I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, yet I hold this against you. 
You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The letter to the Ephesian church. There's a lot in this little seven-verse letter. We're going to start together at the very beginning. I'm going to move these back because guaranteed I'm going to walk into them at some point while I'm reading my Bible. And that's just dangerous. You're going to notice that all of these letters start with a similar phrase. Let's take a look at verse 1 on the slide really closely and take a look at this. It says that it's addressed to the angel of the church. Now all seven of these letters given to these seven churches start the same way. Is this addressed to a supernatural angel? It could be. We don't know. Angel means messenger. The messengers that God uses to deliver his messages. Are these the messengers in each of these churches? It might be. But every single one is addressed the same way. Whether it's Pergamum or Smyrna or Thyatira, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, they're all addressed like this. Did the angel of the church say this. And then you get into the next half of the verse. And this, I think, explains so much to this poor church and what this would have meant to them. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the lamps. I put beneath the quotation from chapter 1, but if you look in your Bibles at the end of chapter 1, he explains this part of the vision. He says the stars are the messengers of the churches, the angels of the churches. So Jesus, in his own words, is saying, I hold, I hold the messengers of these churches in my mighty, powerful right hand. What does his right hand symbolize? Control, right? Authority, power. He holds them. They're within his grasp. And where is he dwelling? Where is he walking? He's walking among the lampstands. And what do they symbolize? The lampstands symbolize the churches. So for this church now that we haven't heard about in Scripture in over three decades, who's suffering under this incredible persecution of the Roman Empire, Jesus says, to you, church, I hold you in my mighty right hand, and I walk among you, saying, I am in control, and you are not alone. What would this have meant to a church struggling like that for all of those years? To hear that he still holds us and he's still there and he's present. It also validates what you're going to see in verse 2 and in verse 3. That he knows what's going on intimately with this church. Now, when I read this list, I think this is a pretty impressive list of deeds. Verse 2, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people. 
that you've tested those who claim to be apostles. That means ones sent, the teachers. You've tested them carefully, and you've found them to be liars, and you've not believed them. Well done. You've persevered, endured hardships for my name, and on top of that, have not grown weary. When Paul meets with the elders of this church in Acts chapter 20, you can read that story, before he goes back to Jerusalem, gets arrested, and then goes to Rome for the rest of what's recorded in Scripture, he gathers with the elders, the ministers of this church, and he says, watch for the wolves. They're going to come, some from within your own family, and they're going to be claimed to be teachers and apostles, sent ones. But they're going to bring lies to you as a church family. So watch for them carefully. And we find out later, they did. They've preserved their doctrine. And even as the world is collapsing all around them, they've persevered. And now you can imagine a church like this. What would their worship services look like? You'd imagine they would lack energy. You'd imagine that they would be dead. They've just slugged through this mess for years and years and years. You think COVID was rough. It lasted a year or two. Could you imagine 30 years of that? Imagine how weary you would be at the end of that. You have not grown weary, church. And as I read these verses, I was up here on stage this week reading them, and I'm thinking about us. And I'm thinking that if a stranger were to come into our church, someone new to the family, and they sat down, and they took in a service, they met some of the people in the family, and they said, wow, your church is incredibly hardworking. Your church has a reputation for persevering. And through all that you've went through, all of it, you've kept your doctrine pure, and you haven't given up. You'd think, that's, that's something. That's a tree that's really producing some leaves. How about that? So for Jesus then to say, yet you're missing something vital. You're missing something vital. After all of this work, what are they missing? Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen and repent of your sin. Do you know how far they've fallen? If you go to Paul's letter, I put the quote up there, if you go and back and you read Ephesians, this is their church. Paul wrote 35 years later that their church was famous for two things, their faith in Jesus and their love for one another. That became their reputation around the Christian world to the point where it's coming up in Paul's personal prayer life. This church was known for this. That's what they did. They had faith and they loved. And he says, I'm always thanking God every time I think about your church because this is you. Now reread those words in Revelation where Jesus says, consider how far You've fallen. You've abandoned your first love. Here in this translation, the word forsaken, if you look in the commentaries or say you read the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, and you look around them, you have abandoned your first love. You have forsaken your first love. You have left behind your first love. 
That's different than you're not as nice to each other as you used to be, or you're not as welcoming as you once were, or you used to have a really tight-knit community, and now you just don't feel as close. The word is abandoned, like you took the love that you had at first, you set it down, and you completely walked away from it. You just left it to die. You abandoned it completely, the love that you used to have. That's why Jesus can say to them, repent of this. He considers this sin, the work of Satan, a lie that they're believing, that they as a church can produce all these leaves, can do this incredible work and not grow weary, and yet love doesn't seem to exist in this place. Repent of it. Do you realize that you could be a part of a church like that? A church that does all of the things. A church that works hard and teaches well. And yet a church without love is a church full of people that need to repent of their sin and come back to God. It's like a tree that produces leaves, but on it the tree has no fruit. Repent and do the things you did at first. We don't take sin maybe as seriously as we should when we read the Bible. And I feel that way when I read it and when I visit with other people about it. That this isn't a suggestion of something to work on. It's not just an example of the pastor giving you some homework to think about on your drive home that we later forget about, and I do too. He is saying that what will be removed if they don't take care of this? What's going to be removed? Their lamp stand. What does the lamp stand symbolize? Their church. The lampstand is the church, it says in chapter 1, and it is going to be removed. That's serious. Can you imagine if God said to us that, Bridgeway, if you don't start loving me and loving one another, I'll tear the building down. I'll disperse the family if you don't love. And we would say, but God, come on. Look at all the, look at all the leaves on the tree. We have ministries we run. Look at the bulletin board. It's good. Like the Sunday school, we teach the kids and we sing the songs. Come on. We go through these motions and they're beautiful. We sit and we listen to sermons. Without love, I'll tear it down. I will remove your lampstand. We need to repent and we need to pray that if we have lost our love, it will be restored before it's too late. Verse 6, you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's not a lot in the Bible about them. But if you look in history, they're believed to be a sect of Christianity that was blurring the lines between pagan culture and Christian life. So they were Christians that ate food sacrificed to idols most likely, participated in sexual immorality. They were Christians who were also living in the Roman world. And they were trying to teach that this was an acceptable way to live. That's what we see in history. And Jesus says to them, well done. You do have this in your favor. You don't buy that lie for a minute. Well done. But it's the conclusion, maybe, that reveals the heart of this story. In verse 7, everyone in the church is addressed. Whoever has ears, 
unless you actually don't have ears, then you are free from this. But everyone else who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say. To the one who is victorious, what do the other translations say? To those who conquer, to those who overcome, you'll be given the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you look in the rest of these letters to these other churches, there are similar phrases that are used. To those who are victorious, they won't be hurt by the second death. That's for Smyrna. For those who are victorious, they'll be given some of the hidden manna. That's to Pergamum. To those who are victorious, you can go down the list. Thyatira, Laodicea, Philadelphia. Not all of these Christians and not all of these churches are guaranteed to make it. There are people sitting in these churches that will one day look God in the eyes and he will say back to them, I don't know who you are. But those who are victorious, to those who conquer, to those who overcome the sin of this world and cultivate this real relationship with Jesus, they will get the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. This return back to the Garden of Eden, the way the relationship with God was supposed to, was just supposed to be and exist. But do you get the irony of this? This is a tree, as a church, that's not producing any fruit. But those who repent of their sin and are victorious over it, they will get a chance to enjoy the fruit of God, even though their church is not fruitful right now. That's why it makes me think of the story of the fig tree. And I remember teaching this in youth group, and me and the teenagers are going through this story. You find this in Matthew, and it talks about Jesus being hungry, and he's going to the temple. This is the week that he dies, and he shows up at the temple, and he sees what's going on, and the next day as they enter the city, he sees a fig tree, and it says that he's hungry. And he goes up to it to go get some fruit. And when he gets up to it, he sees it covered in leaves, but there's no fruit anywhere. And he curses it. May you never bear fruit again. And the tree withers. And the disciples are just stunned by this. Why, Lord? What did the tree do wrong? It was there. It was producing leaves. What's the issue? And Jesus leads them into the city and they go up to the temple which was supposed to be a house of prayer. And when they get into it and they get up to the temple, what do they see going on? Do they see prayer? They see people changing money, extorting one another. They see people selling animals for ritual sacrifice who are extorting one another. He sees Gentiles being pushed out of the Gentile court around the temple so a market could exist. This temple has thousands of people at it for the ceremony of Passover. The tree is covered in leaves. It looks like the whole system is working. Everybody's there. But when Jesus shows up, does he find prayer? No. There's no fruit at all. The tree is just covered in leaves. So he tips over the tables and he whips some people. 
You say, that's intense. Well, he cursed the tree to immediate death. That's how intense it is. He threatens that if we don't love one another, if we don't love God, he'll remove our lampstand. That is intense. This tree was a symbol that a fruit tree has one purpose, and it's to produce fruit. A church has one purpose, and the purpose of the church is to love. It's to love God and love others. And that leads to a thousand other beautiful things. But the church's purpose is to be in this loving relationship. And everything else follows that. Everything else follows that. And they all fit in. So when he shows up to the tree and he sees no fruit, he says, you might as well be gone. And he writes this letter to this struggling church and says, you don't even love. You might as well be gone. But to those who do repent, to those who take this sin that seriously and get down and pray, God, I'm so sorry that in all of this I lost my love for you and my love for other people and I pray that this would never, never happen again. That all of this stuff that we do would be built around the love that we have for you and each other. God says that's the kind of person who will be in heaven one day victoriously sharing fruit from the tree of life with me. That will be that person. You see, they will be victorious. They will conquer. They will overcome. But not all of you will. You read in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has just shown up. Peter has told everyone the way of salvation through Jesus by the repentance of their sin and forgiveness that Jesus offers if we believe in him. And they're able to speak in these languages they've never learned. It's a supernatural event. And then they gather together as a church. And they enjoy the apostles' teaching and their learning. They're fellowshipping with one another. They are breaking bread. Communion is taking place. And they're participating in the prayers together. They even sold what they had and brought their money together, pay attention to this, to take care of one another so that nobody had a need. Those who had more than enough brought what they had, and everyone else had enough. And the people in this church grew in their awe and wonder of God, and the church grew every single day. This love for God and this love for one another, they break bread and they fellowship. They enjoy teaching with one another and they pray. God and each other. God and each other. Who ran the children's church doesn't exist, right? But like who was on the management committee? There was no one there at that time. Who made sure the roof got redone? Didn't matter. You went inside someone's home and you read your Bible and you prayed and you shared communion and they couldn't stop the growth of that church. Every single day. Every single day. It just grew and grew and grew. Like how beautiful is that? That is a tree that is just naturally fruit is just coming off of its branches. Because they're loving God and loving one another. Love is supposed to be the distinctive mark of a Christian. We know the phrase, they will know we are Christians by our love. That is supposed to be exactly what people see when they look at us. Love for him and love for each other. 
When we sing the songs, it sure looks like we're loving God. I hope we are. When we look around this room at each other, I hope that we're loving each other. But even from what we heard at our last church meeting, it's possible to be a part of this family for years and not feel part of it. Hear what God is saying to the church. We need to love each other well. We need to look around this room and say, who in this room needs help and needs support and who's struggling and how am I going to be there for them? You have to have genuine care for the family. I talk to people who don't read their Bibles and who don't pray. They don't mind all of this, but when they get home, it's not really personal. It's possible to sit in church for 60 years and for all of this just to be going through the motions until one day God wakes up your heart and you realize that I haven't loved him for a minute but I'm committing to loving him from now on. And then the Holy Spirit shows up and does something powerful. Then you pray with someone that you never would have prayed with. Then miracles start to happen. It's easy to hear this story of a miracle happening and think it's just a coincidence. It's just another thing that happens. The the human body heals itself. It's not God, whatever, and just go home. Or you stop for a minute and you recognize the power of God has intervened in someone's life in a way that they will never forget. God loves us so much. Is this relationship with him personal? Do we actually love him? Well, as long as the teaching is correct from the stage, that's all that matters. No, I'm saying do you love him? Well, I attend all the services I have for years. I know you have. Do you love him? Do you love one another? Well, yeah, I'm friends with them. No, do you love them? I shake hands in the foyer. I'm cordial with all of them. Have you ever went up to someone who was struggling and offered to take care of them? Have you offered to pay their bills for a month because you know they're not doing well financially? Have you welcomed them into your home to feed them a meal to encourage a mom or a dad or a grandpa and grandma or just anybody in the church? Well, no, I, I don't really do stuff like that. I prefer for all these friendships to just be surface level. All of this is for nothing if it's not real. But guess what? It is real. You ever had a minute to visit with some of the people in our church? You ever had a minute to visit with Tim Orthner and hear about how God is showing up in his Bible reading and in his prayer? It's not because he's a perfect person. It's not because he's a good person. He simply woke up to the fact that his relationship with God wasn't real and everything has now changed. That's someone who's gotten back to the love of first. What about the people in our church who offer hospitality? The people who are regularly reaching out and praying for one another and taking meals to each other's houses and visiting those who are lonely. That happens all the time in this church family. You just might not see it. That love is real. Like This isn't a sermon to 200 people to tell you that there is no fruit on the tree and you need to get down on your hands and knees and cry to God, otherwise the church is coming down this week. There are so many people in this church family who are living this out 
who at our church meeting last week, when they heard the different people who were repenting and struggling, they went to them afterward and they encouraged them and said, how can I take care of you? How can I pray for you? I love you. But not everyone is there. And it's going to be heartbreaking on the day that we stand before the Lord. And some of us, he says, welcome home. I've waited a long time for you. Welcome home. And some of the rest of us walk up to him and he says, who exactly are you? I don't recognize you. For some, a terrifying realization of the need to repent of their sin now. And for other people, the ultimate celebration that even if this world falls apart, like Revelation says that it probably will, even if this world falls apart, I know him. It is well with my soul. I know him and he knows me. Let's pray together. We're going to sing one last song. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord Jesus, over our church family and over my own life that you, Holy Spirit, would reveal inside of me the lack of love that I struggle with. Lord, would you show me where I have fallen short of loving my brothers and sisters in this family, where I've thought things about people in this church that I shouldn't have, where I haven't reached out in moments when I knew someone was struggling. I thought about myself ahead of them. Father, forgive me. I've sinned. And Father, forgive me for the portions of my life where I have not pursued you. I haven't read the word or prayed or wanted to be around you. I just wanted to live for myself. I repent of that sin and I never want to go back to that life. Father, forgive me. I've sinned. And thank you, Father, for the assurance and the seal of your Holy Spirit that for those of us who have repented of our sin, and have trusted in you, Lord Jesus, for our salvation. One day we will see you face to face and be welcomed home. And even if this world collapses all around us, we have nothing to be afraid of. It is well, it is well in my soul. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this morning and the reading of your word. Holy Spirit, would you make it powerful and effective in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are a miracle worker who still answers the prayers of your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry to the sound, guys. I'm going to throw a little bit of a wrench into it. We are going to repeat the last song that we sang before the message is that I stand amazed. Despite the message in Revelation, despite the fact that we have failed, despite the fact that we are less God still loves us. And because we have his spirit, we are always in the presence of Jesus. This morning, he's here with us. This morning, my heart, and I hope yours is too, is over, overflowing with thankfulness and with praise. And I can't help but think that, yeah, I'm in the presence of Jesus, and I hope you feel that. So I would like to sing that with you all again. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could 
We thank you, Father, this morning. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the joy and for the message that you've brought us today. And God, as we go towards our week, as we go towards family things today, Lord, send us out with thankful hearts, knowing your love. And let us not, ex <laughs> let us not to forget to expect great things from you. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus, with so much thanksgiving. Amen. <laughs>